This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. It's my pleasure to introduce Michelle T. today. Um, I've been getting a bit frazzled over the past few days trying to compress all of Michelle's accomplishments into a very small space. And yesterday I found an interview in which the journalist asks Michelle, who are you? And I thought I would read, just read Michelle's reply, and I promise you I'm not just being lazy. Um, you'll see. Um, so the journalist asks, and Michelle answers, I'm a writer and also a literary organizer and activist. Sometimes the literary organizing I do, which prioritizes the work of queer, working class, and poor, feminist, and variously marginalized people, feels like activism. I am the author of four memoirs, a novel, a collection of poetry, and the forthcoming young adult fantasy novel, A Mermaid in Chelsea Creek, which, is, which was out in January from McSweeney's. I am the founder and executive director of Radar Productions, a queer-centric literary nonprofit based in San Francisco that runs a monthly reading series at the San Francisco Public Library, an annual poetry chapbook contest, the annual International Sister Spit Performance Tours, and the annual Radar Lab, which is a free queer writer's retreat in the Yucatan, open to the 400-plus writers and artists who have performed with Radar or Sister Spit over the past nine years. I am also the editor of Sister Spit Books, an imprint of City Lights that will begin publishing this fall, starting with the anthology Sister Spit, writing rants and reminiscences, reminiscences from the road, um, I've edited anthologies on class, fashion, first-person narratives, and queer female fiction. I write for magazines such as The Believer and blog frequently about literature at RadarProductions.org and about attempted pregnancy at exojane.com. I also teach and lecture. <laughs> and so then the journalist says, uh, in the, what I think is the understatement of the decade, it doesn't take much to realize that you work hard. <laughs> Uh, my own first encounter with Michelle's fiction was when I, uh, my wife and I first moved to the Bay Area. Um, a friend said, if you're going to San Francisco, you've got to read this, and she handed me a novel called Valencia. Um, this is how the book starts. I sloshed away from the bar with my drink, sending little tsunamis of beer onto my hands, soaking into the wrist of my shirt. Don't ask me what I was wearing. Something to impress what's-her-name, the girl I wasn't dating. She had a girlfriend. She didn't need two. She needed someone to sleep naked with and share some sexual tension, and for that position, I made myself available. Apparently, it was a temporary position. From this irresistible beginning, the protagonist, who also happens to be named Michelle, takes us on her adventures through the mission, which involve a colorful cast of Michelle's lovers, exes, friends, and flings. 
The writing is vivid, deliriously, and wonderfully alive. The Bay Area, uh, the Bay Guardian said, what's truly inspired in this book is T's literary voice and effortlessly controlled combination of ironic wit and romantic longing. The book won the Lambda Literary Award for Best Lesbian Fiction that year. And my vision of San Francisco is forever through the lens of that book. And I know I'm going on a bit long, but I would also like to recommend, especially, that you read Rent Girl, which is a memoir in the form of a graphic novel about Michelle's history as a sex worker, and her new novel, new-ish novel, Rose of No Man's Land, um, a story about 14-year-old Trisha Discrell, who negotiates the wilderness of malls and the dangers of girlhood and family in 21st century America. Uh, please join me in welcoming Michelle T. Hi, everybody. Thank you for being here. And thank you, Vikram. And thank you, Beverly. Um, I don't really get to perform in such grand environments that often. So I really like being here. Um, I'm reading from my computer. And I'm going to read, uh, I guess it's a sort of essay or a narrative or something that um, I wrote recently. I've only read it once. I don't know where it's destined to end up. But um, it's called Dire Straits. My mother calls me at my home in San Francisco as I work on my computer in my kitchen. In San Francisco, I live alone in a spacious one-bedroom. People visit and crane their heads looking for roommates. My monthly rent is more than I've ever paid, but only $300 more than what I formerly paid to live with 320-somethings, a bartender performance artist, a banker drag queen, and and a student. I decided to move out when I found our fridge filled with sickly, shriveled houseflies. They moved slowly in the cold among the leftovers. I realized they must have been born there and that baby flies are maggots. I was 39 years old and feared that if I celebrated my 40th birthday there, I would have a crisis. So I moved. My mom calls me from the lanai of her own home in Florida. She lives there with her husband. Because my mother is a graveyard shift nurse and her husband suffers from a disease that makes sleeping difficult, their bedroom goes mostly unused. They take turns sleeping on the puffy fake leather couches in the living room. They sleep before the blaring television, always tuned to Fox News, though neither are Republican. The television doesn't seem to bother them, nor do the cups of coffee they drink like water throughout the day. Their circadian rhythms are so busted from overnight work shifts and round-the-clock naps that neither coffee nor hysterical blather have any effect. My mother tells me that they've moved the futon from the spare room into the living room and are trying to sleep together again, there on the floor, between the couches and before the TV. Her husband's disease, a spinal cord pocked with holes and stuffed with cysts, makes it hard for him to get out of a normal bed, but a futon on the floor is manageable. They haven't slept together in a very long time and seem to be excited, though he has already rolled off the bedding, bruising himself. Oh, I love everyone who's laughing. Thank you. It's such a, such a total bummer, this whole piece, so feel free to laugh. I leave my computer when my mother calls and lay down in my own bed to talk to her. My own bed is a very firm mattress sunk into an antique French headboard carved with an argyle pattern and also also with flowers and ribbons and birds. My room is filled with light. My mother tells me her husband is probably experiencing the beginning stages of congestive heart failure. They're not sure. He doesn't have health care and so attempts to understand what is making his feet swell up and his stomach bloat into a hard ball, what is making him short of breath, have not gone well. It's just an awful situation with the health care, my mother says. Her voice betrays 40 or so years on the north shore of Boston, where the accents run thick, no R's to speak of, and then certain words, say half, have such a refined, refined pronunciation, half, that the dialect's British roots are revealed. 
My mother is from New England, specifically the city of Chelsea, a place that made national news when it went into state receivership in the early 90s. The amount of people living below the poverty levels is about exactly double the state average. My mother has health insurance, and her husband doesn't. The cost of putting him on her plan is too much, yet he was turned away from the local free clinic because my mother's income is too high. I don't ask my mother how much she makes. It seems rude. On occasion, my sister and I will send them checks, most recently when my mother broke her knee at work and needed groceries. Through a series of bureaucratic bamboozlement, my mother was not given any paid leave for her accident. Her time away uncompensated, she returned to work too soon after the accident, on painkillers and in a wheelchair, to care for a ward full of seniors, some younger than she. She'd hurt herself slipping in a puddle of urine. My mother's friends suggest she lie and say that she and her husband are separated. He can get a post office box and redirect his mail there. My mother can say that she allows him to stay in the house at night while she is at work, but that she kicks him out in the daytime when she returns. This could help him get better health care. I can't do all that lying, my mother says. You shouldn't have to go there. In San Francisco, where I have lived for almost 20 years, I have had health insurance three times. For one year while working at a housing clinic, facilitating the lead removal from low-income apartments in the Tenderloin. For one year while working at Mills College teaching fiction. And for the past five months, since my partner put me on the insurance she gets through her employer. The majority of my care has been through the city's free clinic system. I could walk into any clinic and wait all day, but eventually be seen. With a little paper card, my medicine was $5. The staff worked to find ways to cover your cost. Though I was a lesbian, for years my annual gynecological checkups were covered through a federal family planning fund. So the nurse would be like, are you using birth control? And I'm like, I'm a lesbian. She's like, you're using birth control. I was like, whatever, man. Just give me a pap smear. The free clinic closest to my mother and her husband is open, but one day a week, on a first-come, first-served basis. My mother's husband was just rejected for Social Security benefits for the third time in a row. She says that having more than a high school education worked against him, as well as how much money he'd made the year before he got sick. Both my mother and her husband attended the School of Practical Nursing offered by the Soldier's Home in Chelsea, a vet's hospital. The program is free, and you work at the home after graduation. My mother graduated when I was nine years old, then promptly divorced my father. I often think of that program as a way of giving the city's many uneducated women and bad marriages the tools and the income to get out. It was while working at the home my mother met her husband. He was an orderly with homemade tattoos on his fingers and an earring. She was scared of him. They married a year after her divorce, and within another year, he too attended the soldier's home and got his LPN. My mother has continued to work in geriatric nursing, even though she has dreamed of being a pediatric nurse. The extra year or two of schooling needed to get her RN, with its attendant pay scale and increased opportunity, has been disregarded. My mother has said she doesn't want to be like those people. What people, I cried. People who make more money? People who live more comfortably? They think they're better than everyone, my mother said. And plus, I'm too old to go back to school. My mother tried and failed to get a part-time job at the big lots near her home. The management feared she would be bored with such work. She dreams of working at a bookshop or as a Walmart greeter. Before he became sick, my mother's husband was promoted to manager at the assisted living facility he worked at. He had to report to work in a tie, which disturbed him. He was asked to overcharge the patients from wealthier families to make up for the economic drag of the poorer residents. He was also expected to discipline the staff, his fellow nurses and aides. He quit. My family is not cut out for positions of authority. Having spent too much of their lives resenting those in charge, the transition into such a role is psychologically impossible. For years, I thought that my own raging against the upper classes, my resistance to bettering my standing, was a punk Marxist stance born of my own moral spirit. 
It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I realized I was parroting everything I'd heard in my home my whole life. After leaving the management position, my mother's husband found work as a home care nurse. He would drive to different housebound patients, administering medicines and routine care. Apparently he was a favorite. Both he and my mother are proud of what good nurses they are. My mother has told me the first thing she does when she gets to work is wash her patient's eyeglasses with warm water and soap, an image I can dwell too heavily upon when feeling especially sorry for her. The tenderness and the duty of it strikes my heart. Both my mother and her husbands talk to their charges like normal people, like equals. They treat them with compassion and respect. They possess a certain snobbery about having received their training in New England, in Boston, my mother will stress, not in Florida or any of the other podunk regions where her co-workers were certified. My mother did internships at Brigham and Women's Hospital, at Beth Israel, a New England healthcare education is world class. My mother's husband began to chafe against his job. He did love the freedom, no one breathing down his neck, alone in his truck listening to Aerosmith on his way to the next patient, goofing and palling down while administering care. But management wasn't reimbursing his mileage, and gas is expensive, plus the wear and tear on his truck. Though they sometimes wouldn't have work for him, they forbid him to sign up with other agencies. Then he became sick, and and employment was no longer an option. A combination of shames keeps my mother from sharing her and her husband's problems. She doesn't want to be a burden on her children. Parents are supposed to give their children money, support, help, not the reverse. She doesn't want me to worry. I've had a strained relationship with her husband, and perhaps she doesn't want me to give she doesn't want to give me more reason to wish they weren't together. Her husband too can be secretive. Sometimes I think they're both shady. It can seem like they're hiding things, not telling the full story. Maybe they're not. At the beginning of the end of the mortgage bubble, when me and my sister sent them checks and hoped they could hang on to their home, I was confused. My mother put her husband on the phone to thank me for the money. He sounded ashamed. I spoke despite the fist of guilt and pity in my stomach. Why aren't you working? Why aren't you helping Ma? It would be a little while till I got the whole story. By then their house was gone. The last time my mother's husband left Florida was Christmas 2007, when they came to San Francisco for the holiday. My sister came as well, and her husband and his family. Me and my sister put my mother and her husband up at a hotel in Union Square, in the middle of the hustle bustle, where the cable cars clang all day. We hadn't expected her husband to be so sickly. The three blocks down Powell to grab a hamburger in the mall food court killed him. He seemed to be in tremendous pain as he walked, the kind of pain that evicts you from your body. He seemed to be both intensely focused on moving forward and also totally checked out, ignoring his body's command to stop. He was present and not present. What's wrong with him, my sister asked in the hotel lobby. He's going to need a wheelchair. Oh, he'll shoot himself before he ends up in a wheelchair, my mother said, fearful and defensive, or winds up in a home, God forbid. He'd kill himself. Suicide as a sane response to a more draggy ending is something my family has always championed. A bottle of succinol and a six-pack, my grandmother would say about her time, should her time come preceded by cancer or dementia. And it did, by lung cancer at the age of 54, and there were no barbiturates or alcohol, just a painful, drawn-out death at Massachusetts General, where she laid in a bed convulsing, bald from chemotherapy, her body shrunk and whittled into something resembling a Chinatown chicken. My mother shared her depressive death wishes with me until I ordered her to stop, and still she lives. My grandfather requested not a burial, but to be, quote, thrown in a hefty bag and tossed in the bay, but a burial he got, replete with handsome young Navy officers sounding taps in his honor. No one dies well, but it is true that the poor die worse, with less care, more terrible care, no care at all, and then the burial costs that their families can't afford. It took my mother a year to come up with the money from my grandfather's memorial, the stone, the cremation. A burial was not an option. It makes sense they try to control the eventuality with gallows humor and a DIY attitude. 
In San Francisco, my mother took, my, took her husband to a traveler's doctor downtown. He saw them after hours, late in the night, and prescribed painkillers that could only be filled at the 24-hour pharmacy in the Castro. She took a cab there and back to fill it. I learned this the next morning when it was all done and her husband was floating on a cloud of pills. Actually, he wasn't floating, not, the way, not in the way narcotics lift you when you don't actually need them. He was just normal. The medicine had absorbed his body's struggle and he could be among us on Christmas Day, smiling, excited to see San Francisco, hanging off the side of the cable car that took us into Knob Hill to the French bistro we'd be eating our holiday dinner. He had beef wellington for the first time and found it pleasing, as did I. We both enjoyed the lobster risotto. We'd agreed on a secret Santa plan to stop everyone from spending money on everyone, but my mother cheated and gave me a light blue sweater from Old Navy. My sister's mother-in-law picked up the bill. On the cable car back downtown, she shoved a pocket full of dollars into the operator's gloved fist and expressed sympathy for his having to work on Christmas. He dinged the bell at her. In the hotel lobby, I said, Ma, you should have called me. I could have gone to the Castro for you. I could have come to the doctor's. But my mother didn't want to worry me. She was too busy worrying about me, my recent breakup, my new AA sponsee. My mother was happy I wasn't drinking anymore, but she didn't like me hanging out with so many alcoholics. Her husband is an alcoholic as well, though he hasn't taken a drink since the early 90s. He went to AA for a moment to get his footing, but all the talk of God and the members' dependence on the meetings bugged him. On the telephone, my mother tells me that their car broke down again. She laughs when she tells me, though it isn't funny. My mother has a peculiar tick wherein she laughs broadly while delivering bad news. It used to drive me crazy. Why are you laughing, I'd ask. Do you think it's funny that the car broke down, slash her husband fell while mowing the lawn, slash was run over somehow by his own truck, slash lost his truck, slash was declined for Social Security? The hurt in her response made me feel like a monster. Of course she was laughing because it wasn't funny. I'd grown up in this family. If I didn't understand their ways by now, age 41, I was hopeless. I ask her what happened to the car, and she tells me it was the oil pump. The good news is the oil pump is new, less than a year old, and therefore under warranty. The bad news is she has to fix whatever broke the oil pump. The badder news is that the car has been in the shop going on four days, and she's having to take a cab to and from work a city or so away. Do you trust your mechanic, I ask her, because her car is always breaking down. My sister has a theory about their car always breaking down. The theory is that my mother's husband is a secret drug addict. No longer with an income of his own, he has rigged up a situation with their car mechanic, who would have to be a drug dealer in order for this theory to operate. The theory is nothing is ever really wrong with the car. It's just a cover for my mother's husband to get money to the drug dealer for pills. Before my mother's husband stopped working, when he was a home health care nurse, always on the road, my sister had a theory that he was actually seeing prostitutes. My sister's theories sound far-fetched, but similarly outrageous theories in the past have proven to be true. We're going to a new mechanic, my mother tells me. That last one, he's a nice guy, but he makes too many mistakes. My mother pauses, feeling a bit guilty for judging the mechanic. But then, you know, the car is 20 years old. It took all the money I'd saved to visit your sister, so she's going to have to feed me while I'm there. All we want to do is feed our mother when she visits and buy her things, as if we could somehow save her with tuna sandwiches and hamburgers and tchotchkes from the Disney store. But she is our mother, and all she wants to do is take care of us, paying for our lunches and dinners and buying me cast iron pans and glittered silicone spatulas from the fancy kitchen shop by the water. It is hard to accept things from my mother, but to refuse them robs her of her dignity, her desire to be a mom taking care of her kids. It would take from her the feeling that all is right with us, that our family demonstrates the natural order of things. Parents take care of kids. Kids don't take care of the parents, not until they're very old anyway, and even then, you inherit something, don't you? My mother and her husband make ridiculous decisions with money. The way that she came into any at all was from throwing her back out at work in the 90s. Her settlement was enough to buy a house where they lived in Massachusetts. 
Soon after, my sister and I confronted my stepfather about his creepy behavior while we were younger. The family fell apart for a while, which my mother dealt with by maxing out her credit cards on trips to Disney World. Her husband became a certified diver and took trips off the Keys, swimming with whale sharks. Eventually, they decided to live inside their vacation and moved to Florida. She sold her home to her husband's brother at a deep discount, not bothering to try to make any money on the sale, let alone get what they paid for. Her brother-in-law struggled with a lazy wife who wouldn't work and two teenage boys. Plus, the houses in Florida were cheaper. About a year after they moved, the brother-in-law sold the house at a profit and joined them in Florida. The house he bought was bigger and had a cage pool. When a hurricane ripped apart their town, my mother's house was spared, though she was traumatized by the experience. The windows on her floor of the managed care facility had imploded, spraying glass across her patients. The tornado in the parking lot created an otherworldly atmosphere that popped her ears and sucked the elderly toward the hole in the wall. She found her staff, a group of CNAs from Trinidad, holed up in a nurse's lounge holding hands and crying out to Jesus, and ordered them back into the ward. When she returned home, her house was so obscured by fallen trees she thought it was gone. She cried with relief to see it wasn't, and she cried for the next month, erratically bursting into tears at the Home Depot, buying a flat of water, or talking to me on the phone from her home, a dark and oily place, powered on generators, the windows boarded, fans replacing air conditioning, weakly trying to push the Florida swamp out of their home. When a man came around offering to haul down trees out of their yard, she paid him up front for three days' work. He was a stranger, but he had a little girl with him and seemed like he needed money, and she felt bad. She gave the little girl lemonade. The man worked for half a day and never returned. When my sister got married, my mother's anxiety about the cost of the wedding consumed her. She decided to sell the lot that came with her house. It didn't matter that the wedding was paid for or that her plane tickets and housing would be taken care of. She wanted to help. She wanted to buy a dress and pay for lunch the day after the wedding. The possibility of a sale rose and fell, rose and fell. Do you know about Joseph in the ground, my mother asked me. European Catholic nuns once buried statues of St. Joseph in the ground outside property they wanted for their convents. Now people buried statues on their own property when they hoped to sell their homes. She'd purchased a Joseph-in-the-ground kit from a Catholic supply center and dug him into the wild lot beside her home. She signed off on a fast sale, less money than she could have gotten had she waited, but the wedding was coming. My sister tried to block my mother from spending any of the lot money on the wedding. She wanted her to put it in the bank. Do you have any savings at all, my sister demanded? How are you going to take care of yourself when you retire? We're going to have to take care of you. My mother bristled. Retire? I'll work till I die, she, till I die, she snapped. You're not going to take care of me. I told my sister that she needed to let our mother pay for her lunch. It's important to her, I said. She needs the dignity to make her own decisions with her money. My sister's therapist said this was true, and so my mother paid for the lunch. My mother's husband... My mother's husband's medicine runs her $400 a month. It is harder and harder for him to get his prescription filled, as their region of Florida is plagued by pill mills, illegitimate pain clinics staffed by doctors who will prescribe morphine and Oxycontin to addicts. Morphine and Oxycontin are his medications. The pain clinics have become tiny police states, with all patients presumed guilty, addicted, by the cops who patrol and raid the places. Squad cars idle in the parking lot. My mother is not allowed to wait there for her husband. Waiting in the car is prohibited. Because he's not insured, her husband can get his prescription at the pain clinic, but he can't get it filled there, as they don't take cash. He goes to the pharmacy at Walmart, but they are clean out of narcotics. He finds a private pharmacist that is scared to take on a pain pill client. My, mother, my mother's husband talks him into it. I think about writing about what my mother's husband is going through in order to get his medicine and ask if I can talk to his pharmacist about it. His response is terrified. Oh, no, no, he says on the phone. He won't talk to you, and he'd stop filling my prescriptions. I don't understand, I say. Nothing illegal is happening. Why is he so scared? Why is it so hard for you to get your meds? 
Why do some people have really, really hard lives while other people's lives are easy? Why don't I have a degenerative spine disease? My mother learned from another friend in Chelsea that three other men of her husband's generation have strange spinal disorders. They all grew up in the same neighborhood, a series of streets that dead-ended into a large waste dump. What are you going to do, my mother says, and it's not a question. It's just what's going on. She's talking about her husband's body, the swollen feet and belly, his trouble catching his breath. It is what it is. But we don't know what it is. Could it be the meds? I wonder if they're not bothering his liver, my mother wonders. Your liver, your heart, your lungs, they all coincide. My mother and her husband are the least healthy healthcare professionals on earth. They have done nothing to supplement the education they received in the 1980s. They chain smoke and have resigned themselves to the deaths they'll be rewarded with. My mother reacts with fury against the anti-smoking legislation popping up around the country. When she arrives in California, she's not allowed to smoke outside the airport. In San Francisco, she cannot smoke in parks. Before you know it, they won't let you smoke in your own house, she rails. Mom, you're paranoid, I said. People just don't want to breathe in cigarettes. It's gross. I know, she says, slightly ashamed. It's terrible. Her addiction butting up against her desire to make everyone happy or not make anyone mad. Her husband has a high white blood cell count. What does that mean, I ask? How did you find that out? When we went to the free clinic and they told me I made too much money, she scoffs, they handed him an inhaler and sent him home. How is he doing today? He's down in the dumps. Her husband has been depressed about his condition, about his inability to contribute to their life. To compensate, he'll mow the lawn or take on a chore beyond his ability, resulting in falls and increased pain. He'll burst into tears, afraid that she will leave him. For years, my sister and I have wanted her to leave him. Now if she leaves him, he'll die. If his feet swell up bad again, we'll go to the emergency room, she tells me. He's not in dire straits, like I need to call 911 or anything. Dire straits is something my mother will say a lot. They're waiting for him to reach this level to bring him in. But I wonder if they are able to accurately recognize what dire straits looks like. To me, they have been in dire straits for quite some time. What does the bottom look like to them? His feet came down some once he put them on pillows, she explained. They were so red and shiny. It is hard for my mother to explain a situation in a straightforward manner. I think she is in a state of perpetual overwhelm. Why are there fluids in his feet, I ask her. It's a congestive heart failure thing, she says. The heart's not pumping and the fluids pool in the feet. I noticed Thursday or Friday he took a shower and came to sit down. I said, you don't look good. He was huffing and puffing. My mother got one of her nurse tools, an oximeter. It's a little gizmo you put on your finger and it tells you how much much oxygen is in your blood. I said, put it on and go walk into the kitchen. He shuffled into the kitchen where their untrained Maltese, Kira, pees on newspapers on the floor. He shuffled back. 91, she said, not good. We put people on oxygen at 92. But then it went back up again. He's not in dire straits. Dire straits. Only my mother talks like my mother. Who says dire straits? They're a band. There are all sorts of old regional phrases that my mother carries on. Not for nothing. As in, not for nothing, but I should have looked into the situation for nurses before I moved to Florida. There's no union. It's a right-to-work state, meaning you have the right to work and they have the right to fire you. Or, light dawns on Marblehead. Marblehead is a fancy town by the sea in Massachusetts, but it is also your own thick-headed noggin, slow to understand. He's going to talk to his doctor, my mother continued. He wants to get off some of his medication. Wait, I thought he doesn't have a doctor. His pain management doctor at the pain clinic. She does labs, but she's not his primary care. He doesn't have that. I could have him go to Mapitan, that's her doctor, but he won't do sh- He'll say, put your feet up and watch your salt. You don't know that, I said. Is it because my life is so comparatively easy that I'm quick to access hope? Because my life has turned out well, do I presume everyone else's will too? Why don't you just try Mapitan? Because he doesn't have insurance. No one wants to see you. They literally tell you they don't take uninsured patients. I begin a rant about the Hippocratic Oath. Don't all doctors take a pledge to not let people die? Am I ruined? I am ruined from a life in San Francisco where people like to do good things. I do not understand how the real world works. 
We'll see, my mother says. Like I said, he's okay right now. I'm a realist, Michelle. I'm just a realist. He's got a disease process in his back. He's a heavy smoker, though. He's cut smoking way down, and people get sick. I'm relieved that my mother is so detached because I fear her being in emotional pain over her husband dying before his eyes. And I am chilled at her detachment. When they found a cancer in my grandfather's nose, my mother was also a realist. He's an old man, she repeated. She didn't think surgery was a good idea. But they took care of the cancer, and he lived another decade. I don't think I'm exaggerating, she says. I just know what I see, and his belly's gotten huge. I would never think that my mother exaggerated. My mother and our whole family downplays everything. They do not exaggerate. They are meek people. For years, my mother would play the lottery, elaborating humbly on how she would spend the money. I'd keep some, she'd say, but I'd give it to you kids. I'd give it to Papa and Willie, Papa's girlfriend. I'd give it to Darlene and the kids. I'd give some to Kali. It was a prayer of sorts. My mother is truly Catholic and believes that selfless altruism is rewarded with the granting of more selfish desires. The pagan roots of her Irish Catholicism exist within her without her knowledge, her prayers often resembling spells, Joseph in the ground, playing our birth dates on the lotto. In her cold acceptance of death, she is a Scorpio. In her work, she is Hecate, ushering the dying out of life. Her husband also believes in the value of aiming low. Wanting to transition out of nursing and into his passion, diving, he dreamed of washing the windows for a dive shop. Wouldn't you want to lead dives, I asked, or work on the boat? Nah, I don't care. I'd be happy just washing the windows. These goals, goals filled me with a heartbreaking rage. I saw inside them the history of my own low standards and lost potential. It made me want to kill them both. That was before he got sick, when I spent the visit researching universities that had programs in marine anthropology, registering from inf- him for information. He wanted to study shipwrecks. Why would I think someone satisfied with washing windows at a dive shop would have the wherewithal to enroll in university? I hadn't even had such wherewithal, had not attended university. This was once their fault, but at this point, it's my own. My mother is explaining her husband's body to me. It's just that your heart doesn't pump right, so the fluids in your body, instead of moving it, stagnates. You've got valves in your legs that pump the blood back into your heart. What is the fluid? Blood, plasma, lymph, fluid. Your blood isn't just blood. What does he want to do about his meds? I think he wants to go off them all and then start all over again and see how he does without them. They don't know enough about syringomyelia. That is her husband's disease. When he was diagnosed, my mother called and asked me to look it up on the Internet, something she, doesn't, she didn't have. I printed out pages of information and sent it off to Florida in an envelope. Duke, UCLA, and Mass General are just starting to do tests. Tests. There is a new medicine available called Neurontinin. It's for neuropathy pain from nerves. It's not a narcotic. The whole thing is no health insurance, my mother says. You can't even get it in and get it straightened out. We'll see what we can do. It seems to be a chronic thing. It's not like, oh my God, I've got to call 911. He can't breathe. But the shortness of breath is new. Her husband doesn't want to go to the hospital anyway. Oh, yeah, and there's another bill for you, she mimics him, and I can't contribute. But I don't care about that. You think I care if I get a $2,000 bill from the ER? Seriously, I'm 62. What are you going to do about it? I'll give you $10 a month. As long as you give them something, what are they going to do? (laughs) There's no debt as prison, my mother is fond of saying, and good thing. She went bankrupt traveling to Disney, moving to Florida, installing a hot tub on the lanai of the house they eventually lost. I'm reading a lot about that generation, she says, referring to her husband, a decade or so younger than she. The 60s and 70s, people did a lot of shit, and it took a toll on them, their livers and hearts, and it's showing up now. I wonder if you could have hepatitis C, like a lot of people who once shot drugs. They were wild childs, my mother says, and shifts from vaguely cavalier yet agitated to somber and guilty. Part of me feels bad for talking to you about it. I haven't even talked to you in a week, and now I just dump all this on you. The doorbell rings and Kira the Maltese begins to bark wildly. Hold on, it's my pizza, she says. I wait on the phone while she pays the delivery guy. My mother doesn't have many people to talk with. Maybe some casual friends at work. A couple of old flames from childhood she's reconnected with on Facebook, both with sickly wives. They commiserate. 
Her parents are dead and her only brother is a mentally ill drug addict. So far gone at this point, it is impossible to tell when he is high and when he is having an episode. She comes back on the line. I think you need to talk about it, I say to her. And she says, I guess I do. We have confusing boundaries, my mother and I. I have forbidden her from sharing so much of her pain with me because I didn't want to hear how she wanted to die. When I wouldn't speak to her husband, I didn't want to hear about how hard it was for her. Maybe it's hard for me not to have a family I lashed out, to have had a peeping Tom stepfather. Now she shares this new trauma in a stop-and-go mode, bursting with it, then sheepishly backtracking. But I think it's okay for her to talk to me. My mother's pizza is getting cold. She has to go and eat it. I love you, I tell her, and she counters with, I love you more. It's what she always says. Kisses and hugs, she sings songs, and makes a bunch of squishy kissing noises into the phone and hangs up. That's it. Thank you. So now we're going to have some sort of awkward conversation. I'll sit here kind of awkwardly. I run a reading series in San Francisco, and it's a public library, and half of it is the reading itself, and then the other half of it is a Q&A, like a conversation with the audience. And when I was doing the first one, I realized that I had planned an event that one half of the event relied on people participating, which, and I just panicked, because I hate participating. I never participate in anything. And um, so I, I started, I baked cookies, and whenever anyone asks a question, they get a cookie. And I've been doing this now for 10 years, and we always get questions, so. But I have no cookies for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I have no cookies, but I do have a question mm-hmm. to get us started. Okay. Um, now that piece, was it fiction or not? Oh, it's nonfiction. It's an yeah. essay. Yeah. Yeah, so it seems like you, um, even in your fiction work, there's a lot of leadover. So how, how is it going between nonfiction and fiction, and how do the stories come from that? Most of what I've written that's out there in the world is nonfiction. Even something like Valencia, which got a fiction award, it wasn't nonfiction. It was, it was a memoir. And I just, you know, I, I was like, don't tell them they'll take my award away. <laughs> but um, I came, I started writing like in the 90s um, during this moment where like confessional poetry was really big. And uh, I got really into the sort of new narrative scene out of New York and here in San Francisco and um, everyone I knew was just sort of writing about their lives and not tripping like I'm writing a memoir or I'm writing a novel it was like everyone's text that they were producing was just about their own experience so when I gave the book Valencia to Seal Press I hadn't been like this is a memoir I just gave them this book and then they just published it and it became sort of shelved as a novel and won a fiction thing but I wasn't I just wasn't caring about it either way kind of um but I am writing a lot more fiction now, and it's really a relief. I mean, I got so tired of, because so much of my work is actually reading and performing what I write. I do a annual um, spoken word tour, and um, so I'm always kind of reading about my own experience. And I just kind of, I think after Rent Girl, I kind of hit critical mass with it, and I felt like I'd been sort of performing some version of myself um, for like a while, and it stressed me out. So I decided to start writing fiction. And it was really hard because... The thing about memoir is that the story is already there. Like the challenge and the joy is sort of playing with language and trying to manipulate your your readers into feeling various feelings you want them to feel or whatever. But um, with fiction, you know, just like creating the world from the ground up was so unnerving. And I had no understanding if I was doing it convincingly or not. I'm coming from a memoir background. I wanted it to, to read as something that was really real. I didn't quite get at that point that it didn't, it was fiction. It could have been less real. You know, like there was space to play with that. Um, but I was just kind of paranoid that it wasn't real. And, um, but it's gotten much easier since then. And um, 
my next book I have coming out, it didn't come out in January. In January, It's coming out this spring, which is uh, The Mermaid in Chelsea Creek, which is a, it's a three-part young adult fantasy series that McSweeney's going to publish. And, you know, I mean, I still have my same obsessions, even in my fiction. Like, you know, the book is set in Chelsea, Massachusetts, where I'm from. And they're the kind of, you know, the environment is really similar. But there's, like, talking pigeons and a Polish mermaid in the creek and stuff like that. So it's fun. It's really, it's great. I, I like to be able to... Um, sort of play with it. Oh, I have another book coming out called Black Wave that will be out on Sister Spit City Lights books um, in like 2014. And that is a memoir. It's like a memoir superimposed onto a sci-fi book. So it's like really mean. It's really telling this story of moving to LA, but then the world is ending around us. And so there's all, it's like this really weird thing because I was like, I had wanted just to write this kind of apocalyptic book and then I kept finding that I needed to tell this story about a breakup I'd gone through that was really epic. And so I just allowed myself to write the breakup into the sci-fi book. And then the person I'd broken up with got so angry that I'd written it that I went back and had to tear him out of the story and then fill in all of these weird holes. And so it's this very bizarre book that's about memoir, and it is a memoir, and it's also about the end of the world. It's, it's fun writing fiction. I had the Michelle character like, and like have an affair with Matt Dillon because I could. I was like, that's cool. Why not? You know, I can do whatever I want. So, yeah. so in writing nonfiction, when you need to express a relationship that that you have with someone close to you, someone personal, I, I think that's mostly what makes stories good easy for me is having these really deep relationships where you can express a relationship on a level that most people don't even communicate to each other when they have that relationship. So it seems dangerous to have. To sort of out those relationships in nonfiction work, and I've experienced this at least once with one of my friends that I added in one of my stories, and it sounds like you had it with that guy that, or woman you broke up with. Um, so how I don't know is that is that scary? How how conscious of that are you when you're writing a story about how much you actually want to express about a relationship yeah. about another person and your view of that person mm-hmm. in the work? Um, I think that while write while actually writing, I think it's good to not be conscious of it at all and just get the story out, and then. Whatever sort of hiding or you know or removal that you feel like you might need to do for the sake of relationships, you do that during the editing period. But I think that if you're going to sit down with that sort of concern or or, or fear, you're ne- you're never going to get the story out well. So you might as well not even bother. Like if you're going to do it, just get it out and just tell every dirty, disgusting, horrible, offensive, you know, friendship killing, betraying detail you can. And then you can go by, back and you can play with it. And I've done that. In um, other things that I've written, in Valencia, you know, I went back and removed some details that I felt were extraneous to my relationship to that person and would make that person feel unnecessarily sort of vulnerable and betrayed that I, I was kind of telling a secret about them, but it wasn't my secret to tell, you know what I mean? So kind of understanding a little bit of that, what that balance is. And it's really tricky. I mean, when I was younger in writing in my 20s, I, I had this sort of like, I don't fucking care attitude. I just felt like everyone had been at such a jerk and I'd been like screwed over and I didn't care. And I was just like very self-righteous and just wrote whatever I wanted to. And thank God, because I wrote these books that I would never write now. <laughs> but I like them and others have seemed to like them. So I'm happy they're out there. Um, it was easier in my 20s because life was such a blur in a way. And friendships were so transient in a way. You know, um, you know, I came to San Francisco in the early 90s. I was in my early 20s. People were coming and going. People were, were coming into town. Then they'd vanish. They'd move home. They'd go to college. They'd graduate college. They'd move to Oregon. And um, I didn't feel bad about 
um, anything that I really wrote about anyone because I just felt like, oh, well, it happened. Sorry you did that. Now you have to read about it, you know? Um, I definitely don't feel like that at this point. You know, I was in a really long relationship for eight years. And when I began the relationship, there was this whole kind of, I was like, well, I'm probably going to write about you. And he was like, I love it. I want to be, you know, he's like a total narcissist. He's like, write about me. I don't even care if you say bad things, you know? But then, you know, eight years later, <laughs> he does, of course, care that I say bad things. And I didn't, so I, I held off writing about us because I'd never really written about relationships as I was in them. Like, I never wrote about them in real time. I always had a distance. And so I could evaluate, like, well, what is that relationship to me right now? Like, this is somebody that I hang out with all the time and it's really going to impact my life if they're mad at me. Or is this somebody who's going to be mad at me from a distance? And, you know, not that I want to make them mad, but I, I'm willing to make that sacrifice to tell my story. But you, actually living with someone and having that kind of stability, I was like, of course I'm not going to throw a wrench into that. I would just be screwing myself over, you know. <laughs> um, so after we broke up, I was like, yes, you know, I'm going to tell the story. And, um, and, and I did. And, you know, it just, he got so upset. What happens, I had done a reading in the town that he lives at, and I read a part of it, and it wasn't even a bad part. You know, and he got so upset that we both were like crying at an after party about, you know, and debating like bullshit in our relationship that we'd been out of for five years. And you just like have this horrible feeling where I was like, it's really funny, like whatever patterns you have in a relationship are also the same patterns you have like in your breakup and then are same, still the same patterns you could possibly have in friendships. So I was like, oh my God, it's like five years after our breakup and look, we're still doing this thing like this horrible arguing and like I think he's crazy and out of touch with reality and he thinks I am and it just suddenly was like not worth it to fight for this book to to I was like it's it's not I don't care enough you know I think that the stories are good who knows what will happen to them the ones that got pulled out you know but um I'd been struggling with the book anyway, feeling like there was something wrong with it. And I suddenly got really inspired, like, oh, I'm just going to take you out of it. It's going to save the book. Like, and instead, I'm going to like, have space to kind of wax and make things really weird. I kind of wanted to make things more experimental and weird, and this gave me you know, the chance to do that. And, um, and then I had other people who are also in the book that I'd been in relationships with that, that you know, either our story wasn't so harsh or I just cared less about what they thought, and I played with them and made them more, I don't know, I just, it gave me an excuse to play, you know, and I liked that, and also I just realized, oh, you know, when a book comes out, you do this little round of your reading from it, people are talking to you about it, you do interviews about it, and I was like, oh, God, I'm going to be talking about my relationship with this person for, like, at least a year, right, I'm going to, and it just was, like, awful, and I was like, it's going to be a bummer in my relationship I'm in now, it's just going to be, like, another thing, because we were both very public people together, I felt like it's just another thing that's going to like, wed us in the minds of people. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's really complicated to figure out, but I just think you have to weigh, like, what is the what's the amount of bullshit you're going to have to deal with, and can you deal with it, and that's it, you know? Like, I, do, I really hope my mother doesn't read this article, this essay, because it would hurt her feelings, you know? But I also feel like I can stand behind what's in there, you know? And if I have to have, a, I've had hard conversations with my mother about my writing, and, and if I have to have another one, I will. But it sucks that she's on Facebook. Because if this kind of went up online, I don't know if I'd post it on my Facebook page, because she'd go read it, and then she'd feel really vulnerable. So. You know, tell, what, so if it, is, if it does get out there, if this essay gets out about your mom, which it seems like it will, it's being videotaped right now. Um, don't post it on my Facebook page. <laughs> don't link it. So is that just like a time bomb waiting to go up then, or do you? <laughs> I don't know. 
not. Ne- I mean, it could be. And again, it's like I feel I feel um, prepared to deal with it if I have to. Um, but I'm going to also do what I can to kind of prevent it. You know, she is on. She, again, she's Facebook is the only. That's the danger right there. Like I had, I'd, I'd written an essay that I read at um, MoMA, uh, San Francisco MoMA, for their 75th. Uh, anniversary and it was just about another thing kind of about my family culture and and about like what art was in my family and you know it's just honest and I'm sure their feelings would get hurt by it even though it's honest I wasn't trying to be not being like they're stupid you know but yeah I'm just what they would probably make them feel a little bit uncultured and um the moment people put it on my Facebook and I was like no take it down you know I took it I had to take it down so but I don't think she saw it a lot of times I think she just likes things of mine and doesn't even look at them. Like, you know, she's just like, excellent, you, you're doing stuff. Yeah, totally. So, but, you know, I don't, I don't really know what will happen with this. So chances are if it ends up in a magazine or something, she's not going to get that magazine or even know it exists. So, so that's good. I just, I think it's great when, I used to be a little bit bummed that she didn't have more engagement in my writing when I was younger. But it's the biggest blessing. Like, I just... You have so much more freedom if your parents aren't reading your work. <laughs> so it's a blessing. So I have a question, but first I'm like, I feel like I should give you my daughter's phone number because she's figured out a way to block me from some of her Facebook stuff. <laughs> oh, so you should. I don't know how she does. I have a public Facebook page. But I, I do. Like, she, oh, okay. I, was, I think I have, like, the least protected Facebook page okay. in the world. I think right. that, like, probably people are, like, buying video games with my Facebook page or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine, because I, I just know that there's some things I can see in something she does mom that's just not for you. Oh, all right. Nice. Um, but my question actually is how the fantasy, you know, your fantasy book that's coming out, why it's young adult? I mean, how did that category get assigned? Well, it's it, it, well, it has a young adult protagonist, and it's definitely... Um, a version of that kind of classic story of there's that one who doesn't know they're the one, but they're going to save something big, you know? So it's kind of a take on that story. You know, I think that what it was is I was thinking about a project to work on. I had the Black Wave book that was kind of like kind of done, but required endless tinkering, but not fresh work. So I was like, well, what am I going to write? And I was like, it'd be cool to try and write something commercial, except I don't know how adults live, you know? Like I can't write a commercial adult book, but I was like, maybe I could write a commercial like young adult book because I understand how young adults live. I don't really understand how adults live. So I thought I would try that. And um, I'd recently been inspired by, like, the Golden Compass, you know? And I was like, oh, cool. That's, like, talking polar bears and shit. You can just do anything. Awesome, you know? I was... Because I don't normally read books like that. And it, and it, having read it... I read it years ago, but right when I was starting to write more fiction, and I was like, oh, wow, I can actually just do whatever I want, you know? And I'm just going to retain my voice and my sensibilities within the text, and it's still going to be me, you know, even if there's a witch or something. So, so yeah, that, that's why. So. I don't know if it is actually commercial or not, but I'm really happy with it. <laughs> No, that is the case. I really did. Yeah, I did. I mean, this conversation that kind of inspired it and that I recorded, um, you know, I have conversations like like that with my mom all the time, you know, constantly for years. So um, I don't know why it was this one day where I just was like, I have to write about this. Like, I just hit some, I don't know if I hit a limit with it or something, but I was like, I actually have to just write about it. So I 
just started taking little notes on things she was saying, which is probably horrify her to know that I was doing that. But, um, and then I just worked from those notes and I wrote it in two sittings. I wrote the ball. I wrote like half of it in one sitting. And then I had a reading in New York a couple weeks ago and I wanted to read the entirety of it. So I sat down and I finished it. So it's really raw. Actually, I've only read it twice and I haven't only gave it one. I've only given it one edit, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate in that I can, um, produce a lot of text in one sitting. The problem is then going back and untangling it. But it's not, I, it's not a bad problem to have, I guess. I'd rather have that than just be staring at the page, which is harder. Uh, what would be the biggest then, if you're explaining how um, you can write one you know, sitting and get so much out? I, I've done it before, and it's like it's really hard to go back, and it's almost like doing a sonnet. Or if you mess one thing up, then you have to change everything else about it, like the rhyming, the syllables. It's just like, how do you, how do you go back and approach it when you're going to edit something that's so whole? It's really hard. It's really, really hard, right? Um, just read. I mean, reading it out loud actually helps me. You know, I think I gave it another edit after I did the reading in New York because there were certain things that I was like, oh, that just felt confusing or whatever. Or just now I noticed some other things. Um, I don't know. I mean, having editorial help is really excellent. You know, I mean, part of the problem with the Black Wave book, which I worked on for a while, is that I did sort of like I feel like I barfed the book out, and then it just felt like it was too. But then, like exactly, then it's like, oh, there's like so many. It's crazy. It feels like insanity. It feels like I just had a mental episode. And I'm calling it a book, but really I had like an episode, you know, is what it, really what it feels like. So passing it to other people, you know, getting them to read it, you know, I'm working on a, a book with an agent right now and she's, we, our relationship is really new and she's, she's an agent that will actually work editorially with you, which is like, I've, I've always dreamt of something like that because I, I really do require an editor because I can produce a lot of text, but I'm too like maximal, you know, like it needs, it needs to be cut. Things need to be rearranged. And, and a lot of times when I'm in, in the story, I can't see clearly what that is. So having people help you, I guess, if you have that problem. Yeah. It's challenging. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, a lot of your work seems to be like you have a very strong personal connection because it's about your life in many cases. Um, is this strong, like personal kind of tether uh, since you're branching out into fiction? Uh, do you find it harder to connect with your fictional worlds because this uh, realness, I suppose, isn't there? Or? No, not at all. I really, I really love it. Um, it's really cool. Like, it, I kind of, it kind of feels like, um, like the landscape. Like, I don't know if you ever. I have like lots of recurring dreams where I'm in these like cities. I, I'm always in the same city. It's not a real city. It's like kind of like Seattle. So it's just a city I don't even like at all, or like Chicago. I don't know. It's but it's like weird. I've had these recurring dreams. Nothing amazing ever happens in them. I'm always like trying to catch a train or get a, get something to eat before I catch a train. And so now I kind of know like where there's that place that I got the really great chicken parmesan, you know. And so it's this weird landscape that I'm familiar with. And so the landscape of the books feels like that also, you know. And um, I think. That, and I think many writers have this ability to kind of get lost in the, our worlds, whether it's our own world or the world we're creating. So thankfully, I'm pretty much able to get lost in it. I do sometimes worry that it's either not believable enough, which I spoke about earlier, or that I'm actually um, so unguarded and so subconscious when I'm writing that I'm actually just writing my own life again 
only in fiction. You know what I mean? Like I can trip out on those kind of things, but I think at the end of it, it's its own thing. So, yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Your, uh, your uh, delivery is very much like your authority, authorial points. Mm -hmm. your, your presence, the way you speak to us now, seems to reflect the way you write. Has that always been the case? Did you, did you have to struggle to develop that voice that speaks on the page? Um. You know, I think that why I think the reason for that is because when I really began writing in earnest, it was during um, this like spoken word renaissance that was happening in San Francisco, and I was writing poetry that was like first person experiential poetry, and so it was this sort of odd performance of what was already there in a way, and I think that's really carried on. And then even when I switched from um, poetry to prose, I was still. Um, like, I never thought I would get published or anything like that. I thought that, and, and also, if I had felt like there was nothing to be, to be done with my writing, I probably wouldn't have done it. So what I did was I brought it to these open mics and to these performances. So I was always writing, everything I was writing, like, all of the chapters of Valencia began as discrete, you know, vignettes to be read at open mics and at performances. And so I was considering while writing them the needs of, that and of the time that I was like you know often reading in bars where people were drunk or there were a lot of like guys and so you wanted to write things that were like provocative or you know funny really funny or really gross like really something and so I think that it just was um a good match for I guess my personality or my native voice to just kind of like do that and it's definitely marked the way that I write so it's almost like it's, it's performance art as much as it's writing yeah, I guess so, a little bit. I mean, less so now, but, but I think that it has, you know, even, even something like this, you know, essay, which I was not necessarily thinking of reading out loud, I was writing it more, thinking it would wind up somewhere, you know, published. I think it's just, that's just my voice now at that point, at that point, at this point. Um, but what's funny is that in writing the young adult book, it's got a different voice. Like, I took this real, like, it's, you know, it's in the third person, and I feel like I'm, I'm telling a fairy tale to somebody, and it has a different voice. And I was, like, kind of into it, but scared, because I was like, oh, what, am I a writer now? You know, and I'm all like, oh, they walk together down to the creek, you know, and, like, taking this, it was, like, a different, it was a totally different voice for me, but I just decided it was the voice that the story wanted, and I went with it, and um, it, I haven't read from the young adult book very much, but when I have, it feels really weird. Like, I don't, I'm so used to this sort of uh, delivery and presenting this sort of material, and even though there's a lot of... Um, perks in reading the, you know, the young adult book in that, like, I'm not, it renders me far less vulnerable. I'm not having to, like, you know, expose my family. There's just something so strange feeling about reading, like, what amounts to basically a fairy tale when I'm usually talking all this smack. So, let's see. Yeah. I'm just so curious. <laughs> Writers are so, uh, I don't know, mysterious and enigmatic in the way that they get things done, how they actually manage to get all that out on the on a computer or a piece of paper, if you will. And so I'm wondering, what is your personal um, schedule as far as writing goes? And if you do not feel like writing, but you know you want to, what, do you have any tips to get yourself motivated for you personally? You just have to do it. I mean, I know everyone wants, like, the magical. Well, actually, if you drink this particular tea <laughs> at 6 o'clock, 
Yeah, you know, it's like there's nothing. There's there's nothing magical. You just have to, you know, sometimes coffee works for me. Sometimes I get too jittery and it makes me feel crazy. Alcohol worked for a long time and then it didn't work. You know, there's like ultimately you just need to sit down and do it. I think that the hardest thing is when it's coming, when it's hard coming, it feels like, for me anyway, it feels like what's coming out just sucks. But you don't always know that that's true or not. You just have to write it anyway. That's the hardest part is just allowing. I always think of like, I haven't read a lot of like how-to writing books, but I really liked um, Bird by Bird. I think it's great. I love the whole first draft. And if you can just give yourself permission to write something terrible. When I was writing my book, Rose of No Man's Land, it was my first foray into fiction. And I was like, the whole time I was like, I think this sucks. I think this is horrible. And then I just like was making this weird Zen piece with it. I was like, it's my experience in life to write a really bad book. I've been very lucky so far. People have mostly liked what I've written. And now I'm going to have the life experience of writing a book that everybody hates. And I just kind of was like, okay, that's just like, you know, spiritually, there's a larger picture here that I don't know. And I just did it. And I really, really thought it was terrible. And then I sent it to my editor. She kept it for a couple months, making her notes, gave it back to me. And I was like, oh, this is fine. Like, I didn't think, you know, I wasn't like, this is great, but I was like, this is not the worst book in the world. I can totally stand by this book. So I find that the really hard thing is just like when you're filled with self-doubt to just keep plugging away. Um, My own discipline's really bad. I, it used to be a lot better when I was younger. I had so much excess energy to burn and I just, and especially when I moved to San Francisco and I didn't know a lot of people, it's like all I did was just like get revved up or drunk and write. Um, And now my life is just really different. I run a nonprofit. It requires a lot of work from me. Um, I used to be far more of a workaholic, which I think is really great. I'm glad I was because it helped really get me more established. But I feel like at this point I can kind of like lay off a tiny bit and have a more balanced life. Um, right now, the way that I do it, I was try- last month I was like, I got to write again. It's like McSweeney's just bought the next two books. I'm working on this other book with my agent. I'm like, okay, I really like got to buckle down. And so I was trying to do like the m- mornings like, I'm going to work on my nonprofit in the afternoon and then work, do writing in the morning. But if I knew I was working on my nonprofit at all, it would just suck me up right from the beginning and I just didn't do it. So now I just have days with it, or just writing days and I'm not doing anything else. And whatever happens, whatever falls apart because of that will fall apart. And um, today was supposed to be one of those writing days and I didn't write. But <laughs> I did the other day when it was a writing day. It's new. I just started it in December. So I'll figure it out. When push comes to shove, I won't miss a deadline whether that means I have to get up at six in the morning or whatever, but just do it. Just push yourself to do it. And it just, it just sucks sometimes. Yeah. You mentioned the Anne Lamott book. I wonder who are some of your other peers or influences in writing? Oh yeah. Um, I love so many writers. You know, I, I, I I'm part of a, of a literary community that I get really fed by and that I really enjoy. Um, geez, Ellie Liebegott is somebody who um, we met in the open mics in the early 90s and have been friends since, and I just love her writing so much. It means a lot to me. Um, she wrote a book called The IHOP Papers and Beautifully Worthless, and we're publishing her next book, Cha-Ching, coming up. I love Eileen Miles. She was a, she's been a, probably the biggest influence on me and also like the biggest help to me personally as far as like helping me to get my work into the world. So her work is really important to me. Um, I love like Linda Berry, and I love... Um, I really love $2 Radio, that press. Like, everything, I don't know, I got on, like, the publisher's good side, and he keeps sending me all their books, and they're all amazing. Um, How to Get Into the Twin Palms by Carolina Wachlawiak is, like, incredible. And I'm reading another book by them called Crapalacha by Scott McClanahan that's great. Um, I'm really excited about a lot of books that are coming out. There's a book called Nevada that I'm blurbing by a new writer called Imogen Binney that's, like, killing me it's so so good but um historically I guess I don't know I was really influenced by like Judy Bloom and Sylvia Plath and Essie Hinton 
you know, and Eileen Miles. Like, those are all the people that I felt like at different points in my life really made a difference to me. Um, so. Okay. Thanks, you guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.